Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. You are sending us back to work with a clear mandate to get Canada through this pandemic and to the brighter days ahead. And my friends, that's exactly what we are ready to do. Welcome, everyone, to the On Poly Podcast. I'm Steve Pakin. And I'm John Michael McGrath. 36 days, $600 million, nearly 2,000 candidates, millions of voters, and the result? Pretty much the same dang thing as last time. We'll tear into the Ontario results on this Tuesday, September 21st, 2021, the day after E-Day. So let's get to it. John Michael, one of the television anchors last night called our exercise in democracy extraordinary. And I'm afraid I beg to differ. That was the <laughs> least extraordinary election maybe ever in as much as it was a total Groundhog Day experience. Justin Trudeau is still the Prime Minister, the Liberals will still be the government, Canada still has a hung Parliament, and yes, Ontario, as it almost always does, decided who won. Here is the Ontario seat count as of early Tuesday morning, and admittedly some of this could change as the mail-in ballots are counted starting today, but for now. In the province of Ontario, 121 seats, the Liberals won 78 based on 39% of the total vote. The Conservatives, 37 seats, with 35% of the vote. New Democrats, 5 seats, with 18% of the vote. The Greens got 1 seat, with just 2.2% of the vote. And the People's Party, lots of votes, 6% of the votes, but no seats. And let's just put a somewhat thicker microscope on that. The Liberals got only 4 percentage points more votes than the Conservatives in Ontario, but they won more than twice as many seats as the Tories. JMM, as is so often the case, Ontario barely came through for the Liberals, but come through it did. Right. And, you know, these are the, the, the wages of first past the post again. Um, the, the Liberals uh, have a very efficient distribution of votes. We've talked about this before. They tend to win uh, their seats uh, more narrowly than the Tories, who tend to pile up their votes in really lopsided uh, victories in primarily rural ridings. Um, you know, Ontario has the, the single biggest pot of seats up for grabs in the country, and uh, in particular in the battleground ridings around the GTA. Uh, you know, this is where governments are, are won or defeated, and it was no different this year. Uh, the Liberals largely hung on to their seats around the Greater Golden Horseshoe uh, and even converted a few Conservative ridings. Uh, there were some narrower wins around the GTA than last time, with the NDP coming close to unseating a Liberal in the riding of Davenport, but coming short in the end. And um, somewhat awkwardly, uh, there is the case of Kevin Wong in Spadina, Fort York, uh, the liberal or who was a liberal, uh, but was disavowed by the party. And yet, uh, at least as of this recording, uh, has won the seat there uh, if he in fact goes to parliament uh, and he could choose not to. For, <laughs> um, but if he goes to parliament, he will sit as an independent for now. And let's also add, just for the record, there may be some recounts and there may be some um, challenges and that kind of thing, because some of these results... And many thousands of mail-in ballots. 
Right, exactly. So we're, we're a long way from deciding some of these things. Now, even though the liberals were reelected with virtually the same seat counts, quite incredible, there were some surprises. Two Ontario cabinet ministers lost their jobs Monday night. Deb Schulte and King Vaughn lost to her conservative opponent by 1,300 votes. And Miriam Monsef in Peterborough Kawartha lost her seat by almost 3,000 votes, which is a big shock because that is considered one of the most reliable so-called bellwether ridings in the province. Right. We call it a bellwether, meaning that uh, whoever wins that riding uh, has tended to form government uh, in the election. Uh, you know, it goes conservative when conservatives win. It goes liberal when liberals win. Uh, but for the first time in, I think, decades, uh, this didn't happen. Uh, Monsef uh, was defeated, as you've said. Um you know, a bunch of things going on here. Uh, it is a riding that the conservatives hold, uh, the progressive conservatives hold provincially. Um, but she was also targeted by conservative attacks because just as the election was getting started, you may recall, of course, that, uh, you know, <laughs> in a, a maybe a, a, a historic example of poor timing, the uh, election started basically at the same time as the Taliban retook Afghanistan. In the context of that, doing her job as a minister, uh, Monsef, uh, in a, a press conference, uh, addressed the Taliban as brothers. That was uh, a clip that you know, got played over and over on social media and on television and um, you know, seems to, well, I mean, you never know exactly what has you know, affected the outcome in any given riding, but it seems likely that that hurt her. Hard to imagine it didn't have an impact, given how much play it got during the campaign. I, I agree. Now, the Liberals, of course, did not get their majority. The Conservatives did not get their big breakthrough. The NDP, despite all the buzz on TikTok, again, didn't do much at all in Ontario. But really, in the end, we are in the same place we were after the 2019 election. All of this for for all of that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's so there's two things I'm thinking about this morning. Um the first is that since Paul Martin won the liberal leadership in 2003, and that is sort of what I mentally shorthand as like the beginning of 21st century Canadian politics, because I think of Chrétien really as a 20th century uh, prime minister, um, we've had seven elections and five of those elections have returned minority governments, uh, three liberal minorities now, two conservative minorities and one majority each for Stephen Harper and Justin Trudeau. You know, there's a real uh, trend or a real uh, record here of instability in our politics and national politics uh, in the early 21st century. And um, I don't think, and you know, this is me sl saying this with not a ton of sleep and not enough caffeine yet in the morning, <laughs> but I don't think that last night's results can simply be chalked up to the pandemic. Um, I think political parties are having uh, an increasingly difficult time making the argument for themselves at a national level. Uh, you know, the conservatives have their base, the liberals have their base, but this is two elections in a row now where they've really struggled to, um, you know, convert the other guy, if, you, if I can put it that way. Uh, the other thing that I think we can say fairly is that, um, you know, Justin Trudeau has actually been weakened by the results of this election. And, and here's an insight that I'm, I'm actually going to borrow from um, Althea Raj uh, of the Toronto Star, who said this on CBC last night. He has to go back to a House of Commons that looks almost exactly like the one that Justin Trudeau left in August. But unlike in August, he can't use the threat of going to an election uh, for some time now. 
six months, 12 months, 18 months, something like that. And that was like a really big stick that he could use against the opposition. And so now he has to play nice for some period um, because, A, the political parties can't really afford to go to another election instantaneously right now. And also, <laughs> this is one of those very few occasions where the governor general actually has some freedom of, freedom of action, pardon me. And the the attempt to try and go to a quick election, at least in theory, that's, the, you know, immediately after the last election, that's the, the one time where the GG can say, uh, actually, no, we're going to shop around and see if anybody else can form government. Uh, don't disagree with a single thing you said. Having you. said that, all of that <laughs> having been said, I want to pick up on this issue of the status of Justin Trudeau's leadership because I got texts up the yin yang, wherever that is last night, from people saying, oh boy, this is the beginning of the end for Trudeau. He's got to start thinking about his exit. He's really been knocked down a peg, et cetera, et cetera. He's put us through this fourth wave election in search of a majority, failed to get it. He's a damaged brand. However, comma, let me remind those people you know, in politics, a win is a win is a win. He's still got the biggest <laughs> yes. caucus in Ottawa. There's no obvious successors taking their knives out, waiting in the wings. I'm well reminded that Bill Davis, it always comes back to Bill Davis for me, as you know. Bill Davis did this same trick in Ontario four and a half decades ago. He had a minority government. He called a snap election in hopes of getting a majority. After just two years, he failed. But then his next move was key. He promised the electorate, after they didn't give him a majority, only two years later, he promised to serve the full four-year term. No snap elections. He said he'd put the public's business ahead of his party's business. And four years later, Ontarians rewarded him with a majority in 1981. Now, do I need to make this point more bluntly or more obviously? Mr. Trudeau has an opportunity here to get the next chapter of his political life right in a way he clearly didn't over the past two years. So just a, a, a little caution here before everybody tries to shoo Mr. Trudeau out the door. Let's just see if he learns anything from this comeuppance. No, and I, I do think that's the question, right? Has he learned anything? You know, the the Liberal Party had uh, all of the cards in its favor. It got to pick the timing of the election. It had uh, a, a real sort of halo effect uh, from its handling of the pandemic over the last year. People were, I think, you know, reasonably grateful about the way the federal government has handled vaccines in particular. Uh, you know, Mr. Trudeau really gets a lot of credit for uh, the, the abundance of vaccines that Canada has relative to other countries. And yet, um, at the end of the night, last night, uh, he his party did about as well as it did two years ago when the primary issues of the election were SNC-Lavalin and Mr. Trudeau's history of blackface, right? Um, so this, is, this, this should be a warning that if uh, the party and if Mr. Trudeau do not uh, really start taking these lessons seriously, and I mean, two years ago, Steve, you and I were saying much of the same thing, that you know the, the lessons of 2019 should have been a warning to the party. Um, but if, if they do not start taking these lessons seriously, you know, uh, the next election could be bloodier. Well, this is where I pull my old fogey card out of the deck here and just remind everybody that you know, we have been here before, and I, I just want to pick up on, on what I thought was a very valid point you made about uh, we, we seem to have difficulty creating majority governments in this country right now because of all of the different divisions all over the place. 
And I remember, and this is well before you were born, Mr. McGrath, <laughs> I, I well remember, I mean, 1957, it was a minority government. Then came the Deef sweep in 58, right? Biggest majority ever at the time. But then minority in 62, minority in 63, minority in 65, and it looked at the time like it was impossible for anybody to win this thing outright. And then a guy named Pierre Trudeau came along and, um, you know, had a majority in 68, a majority then again in 74, a majority in 1980. You know, these things, they can be cyclical. And then Mulroney with a majority in 84 and again in 88. And then Chrétien with a majority in 93 and 97 and 2000. Um, I'm just saying, I get you, but you never know. Sometimes these things have a way of resolving themselves, you know? Absolutely. Okay. Now, we have spoken a lot in the past about Doug Ford's ceasefire with Justin Trudeau, which held for most of the election until the prime minister kind of broke it over vaccine passports. Uh, question here. Did Doug Ford staying out of this election, in your view, help or hurt the federal conservatives? Honestly, I'm not sure you could marshal a ton of evidence either way. I, it, it feels like a non-issue to me. Um, you know, the results are so close. Uh, <laughs> sorry to beat a dead horse here, but the results are so close to the results of the 2019 election overall that this feels like the kind of story that just didn't matter uh, in this election cycle. Um, now, that's obviously very different from 2019, where the Liberals managed to salvage their minority government by running very hard against Doug Ford and uh, winning additional seats in Ontario. Um, if a provincial premier mattered at all in this election, I sort of want to point towards Jason Kenney and the crisis that is uh, unfolding in Alberta uh, that may have uh, helped liberal fortunes uh, more than Doug Ford this time around. Well, I'll tell you one thing that did happen at the Ontario level that had an impact on the federal level, and the federal folks are none too pleased about it. Uh, I don't know what your, you know, I subscribe to all of the party stuff. I get on their mailing lists, and they're fundraising like crazy right now. I'm talking about the Ontario PC party. They are taking advantage of the fact that they're out of the spotlight because of the federal election. And I have heard from federal conservatives who are wondering what in heaven's name at a time when conservatives federally need money, need resources, need people. Why is the premier of Ontario out there raising money right now, which should be going to the federal effort? And I have a feeling that uh, there are going to be a lot of noses out of joint by the time this thing's all said and done, uh, because um, Doug Ford was out there fundraising and, get, and getting lots of money. Uh, he, he's doing quite well at it. Money, however, that federal conservatives would much prefer to see go to their efforts. Right. And I guess here's just where we remind people that the, uh, uh, the Ontario election is, uh, what, nine months away? So if you really, really love elections. You don't have to wait too much longer. <laughs> <laughs> now, let's just put the um, focus on a few names from the province of Ontario uh, who had uh, provincial political backgrounds and just see how they did. Uh, there are a couple good news stories here and then one disappointing result yet again for former Ontario Liberal Cabinet Minister Sandra Pupatello, who ran in one of the Windsor ridings and for the second consecutive election in an attempt to make a comeback to politics, this time at the federal level, came up short, losing to Brian Massey of the NDP. But there were two familiar faces from Queen's Park who are going to Ottawa, and Mr. McGrath will tell you all about them now. 
Yeah, I, I guess I'll just add very quickly about uh, Ms. Pupatello. I mean, this is just a, a, a fascinating story to me because uh, since losing the liberal leadership race to Kathleen Wynne in 2013, you know, she has periodically, uh, you know, tried her hand at uh, returning to elected politics and just, you know, I, if the politics of Windsor have changed or what, I don't know. Um, but she just hasn't found a lot of luck yet. Um, but two of her uh, former liberal colleagues uh, have found, had better luck last night. Uh, Yasser Nakvi, the former Attorney General of Ontario and a uh, Liberal MPP for Ottawa Centre, uh, he was defeated in 2018, uh, but he was elected the MP of Ottawa Centre uh, last night. He will represent the same riding federally that he represented uh, provincially. Uh, and the same is true of Michael Cotto uh, in Don Valley East. Uh, we've talked about both of these men before on the podcast. Uh, the Liberals were uh, very heavily favored and so they will uh, make the move to Parliament Hill. Uh, another name that might not be as familiar to our listeners, but uh, is you know a, a relatively notable provincial conservative, uh, Melissa Lantzman. Uh, she was a, uh, a PC party uh, operative, for lack of a better word. She supported Carolyn Mulroney's leadership bid in 2018. Uh, Carolyn Mulroney did not win the leadership bid, obviously, but then uh, Lantzman helped uh, Doug Ford win the election in 2018. Uh, she was part of the transition team. And, uh, you know, she has pretty quickly made her way uh, into elected politics, all things considered, uh, you know, was was one of those names that Tories talked about as an example of the the more modern party that Aaron O'Toole is trying to build, uh, one that is, uh, you know, more diverse, more tolerant, and more competitive in the GTA. Uh, she beat uh, the Liberal in the riding of Thornhill, uh, succeeding uh, Conservative MP Peter Kent. She's going to make a splash up there, I have no doubt. I, I know her a little bit, obviously, from her appearances on the agenda numerous times over the years, and she is going to make a splash. She's a young female uh, openly gay candidate, uh, as you point out, the, the kind of future face of the Conservative Party that Aaron O'Toole has very much hoped to feature going forward. Um, but uh, she'll get a chance to show what she can do up in Ottawa now, and uh, I have no doubt that she'll do uh, that. She'll make a splash up there, as they say. Now, let's take a look at the Greens and what a disastrous night this was for the Greens. They did pick up a seat in Ontario in Kitchener Centre, but for their leader, their leader, Enemy Paul, uh, who had run a very competitive race in the by-election a year ago in Toronto Centre, narrowly coming second, she came fourth, which was a rather stunning repudiation for someone who had a pretty good leaders' debate by most accounts, but who obviously could not overcome some of the internecine warfare in her own party and caucus. I mean, you mentioned her by-election win uh, last year, and yeah, that was a really impressive performance, but by-elections are not elections. And in the by-election, the, the fate of the, the Liberal government did not hang in the balance. And in this election, it did. And Toronto Centre voters are historically very, very friendly to the Liberals. The, the only time recently that they have not uh, supported the Liberals was when you have that sort of provincial apocalypse that happened in 2018 for the Liberal Party. Uh, provincially, Toronto Centre is represented by a new Democrat at the moment. Um, 
so the you know it's almost like no end to the bad news for the Greens right now, right? They they lost seats uh, nationally. She personally lost her seat, and as you say, not by a little bit. This wasn't really a close run thing. She came in fourth. Um, so even if we didn't know everything we know about, uh, as you call it, the the internecine warfare within the Green Party, um, it just uh, this kind of a performance is the kind of thing that leaders in other parties would have to resign over. There was better news for the Green Party in Kitchener Centre, where Mike Morris was endorsed by a number of prominent liberals after the party had to dump Raj Saini uh, over uh, allegations of sexual harassment. Uh, Morris here benefited both from his own political skills, since he had done uh, really well in 2019, uh, but also from the collapse of liberal support in that riding. Now, it's not often that we spend a lot of time talking about a party that won zero seats, but we really should talk about the People's Party of Canada, because even though they didn't win any seats and their leader, Maxime Bernier, lost his attempt to reclaim his old riding of the Beauce in Quebec, at several points in this campaign, uh, the, the People's Party were polling close to 10%. And there was a lot of discussion on where the support was coming from and if it would actually translate to votes. Were they poaching supporters from the Conservative Party? Were they just creating new supporters of new people who hadn't participated in democracy before? Do you think we're any clearer on getting answers to those questions now that we know what happened on election night? On the big question of whether the People's Party is, you know, generating new voters or simply uh, siphoning support away from the Conservatives, I'm not sure we have a lot of clarity yet. That's the kind of question that, you know, political scientists are going to be, you know, combing over these results for months to come. Uh, but I do think that uh, the the argument that the People's Party uh, cost the Conservatives a lot of seats in Ontario. It's more complicated than it sounds. Uh, I know that there are plenty of writings uh, this morning where uh, the Conservative candidate is probably looking in the mirror, telling themselves that if it hadn't been for the People's Party, they would have uh, defeated the Liberal. But, you know, I look at... Um, Elgin Middlesex London, where uh, Chelsea Hillier, the daughter of uh, independent MPP Randy Hillier, uh, she had been spoken about as the kind of candidate who would do well. And she did. She got 12% of the vote, but didn't really get in the way of uh, incumbent Karen Vecchio getting reelected quite handily. Um, in Chatham, Kent, Leamington, and Niagara Falls, the uh, conservative candidates were uh, re-elected with narrower margins uh, in 2021 than they had in 2019. Uh, but those seats were not, uh, in the end, handed over to the liberals. Uh, you know, there are definitely ridings around the country where you could s sort of do the the simple math and say that, well, you know, the the CPC vote share plus the PPC vote share equals or is greater than the Liberal vote share, and therefore uh, the, the Bernier's party cost the Conservative seats. Um, you know, more seasoned observers will tell you that it's it's never really that simple. That you know, uh, some of those voters who voted for the People's Party uh, were in fact never going to vote Conservative anyway. So, yeah, really. Um, I realize that it's complicated is a, uh, a, a an annoying Something answer. Something your but generation says all the time on Facebook. It's true. It's complicated. 
Uh, all right. Having said that, I'd want to circle back just briefly here on one writing that I did visit during the course of the election campaign. I followed some canvassers going door knocking just to see what issues came up at the door. And I was struck by how many People's Party signs there were in Aurora, Oak Ridge's Richmond Hill. This is in York region, just north of the city of Toronto. And, you know, I hear what you're saying. But on the one hand, that was a conservative riding, which flipped to the Liberals by 1,100 votes, and the People's Party candidate got 1,600 votes. And look, I can't, you know, you're absolutely right. I have not got the empirically provable proof uh, that those 1,600 votes would have gone to Leona Alislev and enabled her to hold her seat for the Conservatives. Um, but having said that, you'd have a tough time convincing me that uh, that probably isn't what happened. I, I just put it right out there. I think that's what happened. I think the People's Party candidate there moved the election to the to the Liberal candidate, Leah Taylor Roy. Well, and, you know, I, I'm certain that there are ridings where uh, that, in fact, happened. And uh, Alice Love's riding, or <laughs> Alice Love's uh, former riding, uh, you know, that sounds to me like a plausible case. Um, it's going to be interesting over the next few months to to figure out, you know, which ridings there is the strongest argument for and which ridings are more marginal. You know, you, you wouldn't have a hard time convincing me that maybe like, you know, six to ten ridings were actually really close and the People's Party uh, really mattered there. I, you know, if you wanted to argue that it was like 10 to 20 ridings across the country where the People's Party, you know, really made the difference. I don't know. That's where I start to be a bit more skeptical. Okay. Well, we know the players in Parliament are not going to be changing all that much, hardly at all, in fact. Can we say what, if anything, may change as it relates to policy in the upcoming Parliament? You know, I think the most relevant thing for Ontario right now is that uh, Ontario is one of the only provinces that doesn't have a, a signed, sealed and delivered uh, child care agreement uh, with the federal government. Uh, obviously, the Liberals had signed a number of these agreements to implement $10 a day daycare with other provinces before the election. Uh, for whatever reason, they did not uh, land an agreement with Ontario before the election was called. Uh, so... We will now get to see whether that agreement materializes. Uh, you know, much cheaper daycare would obviously mean a lot for Ontario parents, but this isn't a uh, a policy that the Ford government has, you know, really been passionate about. They, and I don't think they really like the idea of, you know, federalized cheap daycare. Um, so, you, you know, there's going to be some negotiation over what that deal looks like. And uh, there may also be some discussion about whether that deal even gets implemented in the next year uh, or whether this also gets mixed up in Ontario's own election, which, to reiterate, is only about nine months away. Uh, one other thing that I, I'll just say really quickly um, you know, this is the third election that the Liberals have put uh, a carbon tax as the centerpiece of their climate policy. And it's the third time that they've uh, been made the government uh, by the voters of Canada. I know some arguments never actually end <laughs> in politics, <laughs> but uh, this one, it might be time to wrap up this argument. Um, you know, the, the Liberals keep winning. And even the fact that the carbon tax is now scheduled to go up substantially in the next few years uh, didn't dissuade voters. Um, we talked about the lessons that uh, Justin Trudeau may or may not take from this election. Uh, there are also lessons that both Aaron O'Toole and Doug Ford could take from this election. Interesting. 
Well, let's just say one final thing about democracy in Canada on this day after election number 44. I don't know about you, John Michael, but I saw numerous images on television last night of people lining up to vote for hours. And obviously, because of the pandemic, last night's election was a bit of a logistical nightmare. But to see the lengths to which people were prepared to go to exercise that franchise, which is perhaps the most essential and sacred duty we must perform as citizens, in my humble opinion, well, let me just say it should kick the cynicism right out of you. That was bloody inspiring. Uh, You and I, as public servants, uh, we are only allowed to cheer for one democratic outcome, and that's high turnout. Uh, I don't know what uh, the turnout was. Uh, I haven't actually checked that this morning. But uh, like you, yes, I'm incredibly grateful for everybody who uh, showed up to vote. Uh, You know, (laughs) look at the margins around the country. Some of these seats were decided on really small margins. Your vote always matters. Thank you for voting. And so ends this special edition of the Unpoly podcast, Groundhog Day edition. I feel like we should start uh, I Got You, Babe, by Sonny and Cher rolling. <laughs> <laughs> and they say our love won't pay the rent. Uh, I got you, babe. Uh, <laughs> uh, if you'd like to get in touch, you can shoot us an email at onpolitics at tvo.org or reach us on Twitter. I'm at JM underscore McGrath. And I'm at Spaken. That's S-P-A-I-K-I-N. This week's episode was produced by Katie O'Connor, edited by Matthew O'Mara, production support from Nikki Ashworth and Jonathan Hallowell. JMM, I'll repeat my father's great advice, even though apparently I'm not smart enough to take it myself. Stay positive, test negative. Feel better, Steve. <laughs>